Hello and welcome back to the Kepler Trust Intelligence Podcast. This week we're speaking to Paul Major. Paul is the Portfolio Manager for BB Healthcare, a FTSE 250 investment trust that, as its name suggests, invests in healthcare companies from around the world. Before we begin, a quick reminder that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decided to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Paul, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, Perhaps to start with, could you give some background on the trust, perhaps to people who are listening who aren't familiar with it? So what sort of companies do you invest in? Um, What sort of size? What sort of sectors? Um, And and if you can also maybe talk a bit about yourself and and any other people managing the trust. So how long long have you been there? Um, Any other important background information that you think is worth worth knowing about? Sure. So... First, let's talk about the product. So, so BB Healthcare is an unconstrained global healthcare uh, investment trust. And what that means is we can invest into essentially anything that has healthcare as the primary driver of its um, uh, of, of the investment thesis of the company. So we're not constrained to any specific group of companies from a particular index or region or, or country or, or anything like that. The fund is unusual. Um, uh, and, and possibly, I would say, even unique versus its broader healthcare fund peer group for for a couple of reasons. So, firstly, it's very concentrated. We have a maximum of thirty five holdings in the trust at any given time. We've averaged around uh, thirty over the lifetime of the product, which is about five and a half years, and uh, we we have uh, twenty nine in, in in the trust right now. So, very very concentrated. Um, because it's unconstrained and concentrated, it has a very high active share versus any of the comparator indexes and, 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 and a very um, uh, differentiated kind of returns profile to, to those indices. Um, the other thing is, is that it combines a bottom-up stock-picking approach with, with a top-down thematic overlay. So in other words, everything we invest into has to fit a, a, a uh, well-described theme. And that theme can be simply summarised as, we think the healthcare systems of the developed world are fundamentally broken. Uh, they're no longer fit for purpose to serve the needs of um, an ageing population burdened with chronic medical conditions. So a chronic condition is something that can't be cured, um, it's something you have to live with and manage for the rest of your life. So you know, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, dementia, all those sorts of things that unfortunately we also come to over time as our bodies age and wear out. And therefore we think that the, the, the healthcare delivery paradigm has to, has to be completely reimagined and made fit for purpose uh, in the 21st century to, to, to meet the needs of, of this population. And the challenges here are twofold. On the one hand, because the population of the world is growing, because the, the population of the world is aging, and because we continually unpick new ways of approaching the burden of human uh, suffering through, through medical research, there is this relentless ongoing demand for products and services. But on the other hand, uh, someone has to pay for all of this, and, and, and the burden of kind of um, the, the, the burden of care falls on the uh, generally on the over 65s who are the retired population so they consume the bulk of the healthcare because their chronic diseases appear later in life and they have to be managed whereas it's actually the, the next generation that have to pay for all of this through healthcare insurance and tax revenues 
and, and, and so on. And we, we have a chronic shortage of um, skilled frontline medical personnel. That's not a new thing. It's been a, a growing trend for, for many decades now, but obviously getting significantly worse post-pandemic. And we feel that that kind of Rubicon has been crossed. So we'll never get to the point where we'll be able to have enough staff to scale the healthcare system in, in, in a financially um, affordable manner. So we have identified various uh, products, technologies and services that effectively, if you think about healthcare as kind of an industrial process, uh, we, we, we've identified where the bottlenecks are in, in the patient journey through the system. And we have looked for companies that provide products, technologies and services that enable uh, either physicians to make better decisions on the parts of patients, improve care outcomes or lower cost, or in many cases do all of those things at the same time. And essentially we, we create a portfolio of um, investments that are highly operationally geared into those particular uh, pinch points and, and help to serve, solve those, those, those problems and improve the delivery of healthcare to the population as a whole. So, so in that sense, it's quite an unusual fund. We're not really interested in what's in, 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 in any benchmark or popular in the sector or particular industry groups. We're investing in a diversified way into those, those thematic pinch points that we have um, identified as being the ones most likely to result in, in, in material improvements in, in the delivery of healthcare and the affordability of healthcare over time. The fund was launched five and a half years ago and I run it uh, with my colleague uh, Brett Dark. We have both got um, biomedical backgrounds, so I'm a biochemist by training, Brett uh, studied medicine, we've both worked in corporate finance and um, I've also been a sales analyst and then Brett has worked uh, for a long time on, on the investment management side and uh, we've got many decades of experience covering the healthcare sector and that's what we bring to bear on, 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 on the portfolio construction and investment decision making of the product. So that's the sort of summary of, of, of what we're trying to do and, and, and how it's differentiated from the majority of the peer group, both in the, in the closed end fund environment, but also in the open-ended um, sector as well. One thing that you touched on there um, was you know, different pinch points that you think companies are active in which would make attractive investments. So perhaps could you talk about, first of all, what those pinch points are, and then when you, I'm sure there's lots of companies that will be active in the, a given sector that might be interesting. Um, so how do you, are, are there particular traits or, or things that you look at to sort the good from the bad in those particular areas? Yeah, sure. So, so talk, talking about the areas, I mean, one, one way to think about all, all of this is, is to consider you know, how one interacts with the, the, the healthcare system in the first instance. So, so probably reluctantly, but, 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 but ultimately because of um, our, our age, inherited genetic characteristics, lifestyle factors, you, you, you know, we all know that smoking, drinking, uh, not exercising and eating the wrong foods is all bad for us, but they're also all things that people enjoy doing. So inevitably, there's a tension there. So at a certain point of time, um, you, you know, we, we all end up in that situation where we don't feel well and we seek the help of, of, of the healthcare system. And if you think about your own interactions um, with, with the healthcare system, sitting here in the UK, your first challenge is you have to get an appointment with a GP. That's not easy. Um, let, since this is hypothetical, let's imagine you actually manage to get an appointment to see your GP. So <laughs> you, you, you go, 
<laughs> Indeed. You, you, you go in to see the GP, and of course, generally, you don't have any medical qualifications, but you hope that the GP does. And, and, and so what they do is they sit you down and they ask you what you think is wrong with you. And then you go through this rather iterative process of, of, of trying to determine whether or not you have particular uh, identifiable symptoms or characteristics that might help narrow down the problems that you have. Um, they may then decide that you need some blood tests or, or some kind of a scan. So they then send you away and you have to wait weeks for that. And then you have to then wait weeks for another GP appointment to come back and then to then tell you that the scans confirm what they thought was the problem in the first place. Um, and then they will give you some kind of a treatment um, uh, a, a protocol to, to, to follow. And, and in the vast majority of cases, what they're basically doing is they're giving you something to alleviate your symptoms. So, you know, you've got a rash. Okay, let's put some cream on it. Um, you've got um, some kind of, of, of a swelling, have some steroids. Um, and, and, and so it goes on, you know, take pain relief for your for your joint pain that you have. So, so, so rarely are they actually addressing the underlying cause of the disease. And again, if we come back to this, this reality that around 75% of, of all the money spent in healthcare is addressing chronic diseases, they can't actually fix you anyway because you're not fixable, at least not with, with, with current uh, medical technology. So really it's all about managing your symptoms to the point you go away and you stop bothering the doctor. But then there's a fundamental presumption in all of this, which is you are going to go where you're going to follow whatever medical advice you have. You, you know, why do you feel worse because your blood sugar is too high? You know, change your diet, do some exercise, whatever it might be. Or you've hurt yourself, so you need to do some physiotherapy. Or you need to take these pills for the rest of your life every day religiously. Or you need to complete this course of antibiotics to alleviate this infection that you've got. And we know there is reams and reams of documented data out there that because we're all human beings and we're busy and forgetful, we're fallible. And most of these medicines do not make you feel instantly better when you take them. Um, we don't comply with what, what the advice that the doctor gives us. And consequently, we get a suboptimal outcome. And so the whole thing starts again. And, and if you start to think about healthcare as, as this sort of conundrum of how do you uh, make that whole process work better, there's lots and lots of things you can do. So the first thing is, let's actually make medical uh, appointments accessible by sifting out the ones that are unnecessary and then there will be enough capacity in the system to serve everybody. So stat for you here, one in four uh, GP appointments in the UK are deemed not medically necessary after they've taken place. You can see where the problem is with, with that conclusion. Um, and um, so, so we, we can firstly create additional capacity in the system, you know, telemedicine and virtual, virtual interactions are all, are all part of that process, even if people are uh, maybe not liking that that's the new reality. It's definitely the, the, the way forward, gate, this, gate entry to the system. Putting diagnostics at the, the point of care next to the patient. So those simple tests, you know, 90% of the things that GPs see are the same things over and over again. It's very rare that you've got some complex or, or unusual disease that's going to require specialist medical knowledge. So why not put the diagnostic capabilities to, to definitively identify that in place at, at the GP? Then we can again alleviate that step where you go back and forward while we work out what's wrong with you putting in place simple um, interactive digital tools with the patient and the doctor to enable uh, everybody to follow up with each other you know making sure you take your medicine 
making sure you're not having side effects, making sure that the medicine is achieving what it's supposed to be able to achieve, all these sorts of things. You know, again, if you start thinking about the elderly and vulnerable, you know, making sure that someone who might be a little bit forgetful actually does take their blood pressure medicine every morning is kind of a critical thing, for example. So, so all of a sudden, you can start to imagine a world where, where, where the whole process works very differently. But let's come back to the, the beginning as well. If you look at healthcare, Pareto's law applies as it does in everything else. So 80% of the costs and the resources are consumed by 20% of the people. Those people have either severe medical uh, conditions or they have inherited genetic uh, characteristics or they have um, serious socioeconomic problems that prevent them from making those lifestyle adaptations that would improve their health. For those people that have got genetic problems, that they, they, they could be identified at birth if you did appropriate screening and then we could start to think about diverting our healthcare resources to the people most likely to become part of those frequent flyers and stop them becoming so and so again over time we can imagine ways to solve um, the, the, the conundrum of demand by, 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 by focusing on the right people at the right point so all of these things are, are, are actually when you start to think about them um, in that sort of industrial process way it's very, very easy to, 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 to imagine that these things can be different and these things can be, can be fixed. And, and that's what really informs our, uh, our investment process. So the kind of companies we pick, you know, how do we differentiate them back to your original question, um, is we are, we are generally picking companies where the product, service or technology that they provide has been demonstrated to provide um, th those benefits that we're talking about. So there is clinical evidence that it improves medical outcomes or improves care quality or it lowers the, the, the cost of care. So if it's a drug, we're probably investing into a company, um, you, you know, before the drugs on the market, but in that later stage of clinical development where we can assign a reasonable probability to the drug actually reaching the market. And we can do that kind of pharmacoeconomic analysis on, on the cost benefits. If it's a medical device, it's probably been approved. And what tends to happen with medical devices is after after they're approved, you then conduct real world studies showing you the benefits of using that device versus something else in the real world. And and so we will be owning companies where you, you know the product is is available, but that data probably hasn't come out yet, and and so it's it is not in that phase of kind of mainstream adoption. So we tend to pick um, certainly in healthcare terms more small mid sized companies that are on that. S curve of adoption and uptake for, 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 for the products that they that they provide. Okay, and changing tack a little bit, if if we look back over the past couple of years, um, I think it's been quite a surreal time for most people. Uh, but I would imagine that was particularly true for for healthcare businesses uh, who might have had to deal with sort of more speculative behaviour on markets. So was that true of you guys? Was it true of the portfolio? And if so, did that present any challenges in terms of navigating volatility and so on? Uh, absolutely. I mean, volatility in, in healthcare has never been as high in, in history as it was in that early phase of the pandemic. And we certainly had to dance to the tune of, of, of the market in that regard. There, there were some, as you're sort of alluding to, some sectors that became really, really hot with retail investors and a little bit crazy, you know, around some of the diagnostic companies, some of the COVID treatment or, or imagined COVID treatments, uh, the vaccine companies clearly uh, were, were, were a big bubble. And um, then once the vaccine clinical development program started 
uh, in earnest. So, so it's worth it's worth remarking on on the fact that you know the virus was described first in December of 2019 in in in, in um, kind of elite medical circles. Uh, the, the virus was was sequenced in that, that sequence was made publicly available in January, and in May we saw the first clinical data from clinical trials of a vaccine, which was the, the Moderna vaccine. That is a, a speed of development unprecedented in human history and a real testament to the power of science and global collaboration. Uh, and I think that got a lot of people, in retail investors particularly, excited about healthcare more broadly. But it also led to, to a rather surreal situation where lots of people imagined that the pandemic would be over by the end of 2020 to all intents and purposes. So healthcare, as you can imagine, from a capacity point of view, um, suffered a, 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 a triple whammy. So most of the patients are elderly uh, and, and, and have these chronic medical conditions. So there's a degree to which they can be flexible about when they come in for you know, operations. If you, if you need a new hip or knee or cataract surgery, for example, it's life limiting, but it's not going to kill you. And therefore you can decide to delay it three, six, nine months as, as, as you deem fit. So, so because these people were very vulnerable, a lot of operations were delayed. Capacity was set aside for for COVID uh, emergencies, you, you know, in intensive care and other bits. And then the total capacity of the system was reduced through kind of spatial and temporal spacing, uh, distancing, so, so that uh, there was less likelihood of people infecting each other. So, so uh, we, we saw for really for the first time ever a significant reduction in capacity in the system. So that necessitated. Um, quite a lot of, of, of thinking and planning. I think we navigated that period uh, pretty well, I would say, if you look at our, our returns in relative and absolute versus healthcare in the wider sense. But then when we got to the end of 2020, it was very challenging because everybody started talking about the return to normal. And we felt that based on every pandemic that history had ever seen, there'd be multiple waves and it would take much longer than everybody imagined. So we were much more in the it'll all happen in, at the end of 2021, um, which ultimately uh, proved to be true. So, so I think in, in, in some ways, uh, 2021 was a harder year to, to navigate our way through. But then toward the end of 2021, uh, really around October, we started to see something else which has been very challenging um, to understand and, and um, has, has impacted our investment returns quite significantly, which is if you take a step back and you think about healthcare more broadly, healthcare is healthcare, and it, it's driven by these demographic trends and innovation trends and, and, and what have you. It doesn't demonstrate any kind of cyclicality or, or, or economic sensitivity. At the same time, um, there's not really any difference between a very large medical devices company and a very small one. If, if you're serving a population well with a product that is, is, is widely regarded, then you're gonna grow market share you're going to grow in line with the market opportunity that's before you so the only difference between you know a giant company like a medtronic and a small one is that um medtronic has hundreds of products whereas a small company might only have one or two or three or whatever but they're all serving the same population the same marketplace so we started to see this really unusual trend where small companies started uh, materially underperforming larger ones and um, there was not really any rash. This is remember, this is this is Q4 of 2021. Healthcare's are reopening, uh, operations are starting again. So we've got a tailwind. The broader economy is doing well. So I can understand why people maybe don't want to be invested in defensive sectors like healthcare. They want to be in pro-cyclical, you know, reopening uh, consumer 
discretionary stuff. So, so I understood why, why healthcare maybe was struggling relative to the, to the wider market, but I couldn't understand why all of a sudden investors didn't want to be in biotech or small mid-cap healthcare. And then um, as we rolled into the early part of 2022, of course, um, you know, R Russia uh, invaded Ukraine and uh, the world has become subsequently a very, very strange place because of all of the supply chain and other challenges and, and inflation that we're facing. And that has exacerbated this, this divergence between the ratings, the, the valuation ratings of small and mid-cap healthcare and the valuations of large-cap healthcare. Now, again, in any uncertain situation, people tend to crowd into very liquid stocks because they want to know that if they need to get out of the market completely, they can do so quite quickly. So what's happened there, I think, is that the defensive large-cap, you know, big pharma, big medtech, sort of stocks have done extremely well because people know that they're they're not so sensitive to what's going on in in with, with Russia and Ukraine and interest rates and consumer discretionary income and all those sorts of things. But um, at the same time, nobody wants to buy, you know, biotech or small med tech and, and things like that. So for our strategy, which is much more focused on those operationally geared smaller companies, it's led, it's gone from us being sort of market leading performance since inception up to the middle of 2021 to a much, much more challenging uh, period of relative and absolute performance over the last six to nine months. But within that, if you look at valuations uh, for companies, they are at extremely attractive levels in the longer term. So, so we're sitting in this situation now where it's actually rather challenging because on the one hand, if you were a if, if, if you were a, a risk tolerant investor and, and a patient investor and you, you could buy these companies at their current valuations, I think if you could then put them in a box and look at them three or five years from now, I personally think you'd have done incredibly well. But asking people to buy out of favour stocks within specific sectors at a time where, where they believe the world to be more uncertain than it has been in decades is, is obviously a very, very challenging thing to do. But, but our personal belief is that the, 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 the weird world that you alluded to, um, certainly at our corner of it, looks like a very, very attractive longer term opportunity. So building on that, I suppose there's a couple of questions. So one would be, would you say that price drops and so on that we've seen in the past six to nine months have, have made you think twice about any of the companies you are invested in? And conversely, have price drops made, meant that you've, you've been able to find opportunities that perhaps weren't there before? Um, so, so on the latter, yes, definitely. There, 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 there are certainly opportunities out there. Now, there are clearly certain characteristics that are very challenging. So, so in this kind of environment, if you are a company that's going to require additional equity financing. So, so taking a step back, let's not forget that early stage development of drugs and medical devices um, is, is, is expensive and time consuming. So, so most of these companies in the, the early part of their life, they're, they're not going to be cash flow positive and they're probably over time going to return to the market periodically um, to, 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 to seek more equity investment to continue the, the, the development of the aforementioned products. Now, if you're an investor in one of these companies and the share price is halved, let's say, which is a perfectly uh, common thing to see in, the, in this current environment, and then you know that company needs to come to the market and raise, I don't know, two or three hundred million 
dollars, let's say, to get them to the next gating event in terms of clinical outcomes and regulatory outcomes um, in the journey to bringing a product to market, then, you know, if the, if the market cap of the company was $2 billion and now it's a billion dollars, you're going to get diluted twice as much when, when they do that necessary equity investment. And so people, it's completely understandable that people would want to shy away from companies that are likely to to require meaningful additional financing in the short to medium term. Now, um, you know, we generally, uh, in our portfolio, for example, there are only two companies we believe uh, will require additional equity financing in the next two years, and both of those have outcome events in terms of reporting clinical trials or regulatory outcomes or whatever between those things that hopefully should be should be broadly supportive of evaluation. But I can understand that, that, that some people might be kind of, kind of reluctant to, 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 to buy companies like that. But um, as regards the rest, if you, if you look across the industry, we've certainly had some challenges with regulatory uncertainty. The FDA, in particular the US regulator for drugs and devices, they've seen huge amounts of staff turnover through the, the phenomenon known as the Great Resignation, and they've obviously taken on lots of new staff who tend to be younger and less experienced. So there have been lots of product delays uh, on review cycles and things taking longer than expected, but one shouldn't conflate things taking longer with a probability that things are, are, are less likely to happen. Um, yeah, lots of people worry as well that M&A, which has long been a, uh, a big driver for, for uh, incentives to invest in, in, in small and mid-cap healthcare companies, has gone away to some extent because of changes at the FTC under, under Biden and also disparate valuations between small cap companies and large cap companies, which obviously have now reversed because those small cap companies have have derated, whereas their their large cap brethren have, have re-rated. But again, it's worth bearing in mind that M&A in this sector is, is inevitable for the simple reason that there's no empirical evidence R&D is a scalable um, business, and therefore the very large pharma and med tech companies, if you look at them, 20 to 30% of everything they launch as new products is either in-licensed or, or, or acquired by, by buying another company. And uh, that trend is, is not going to... Uh, is not going to change and there was very little M&A during the pandemic period so if you're thinking if you're a company and you're thinking about competitive challenges or patent expiries that can erode your earnings base um, you the, the urgency to do some kind of strategic deal in order to bridge that is 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 more acute rather than less so I wouldn't subscribe either to the view that 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 is um, uh, you know something that's become less likely than, than, than we would think a couple of years ago. So, so I would say, yes, I, I think there are all sorts of interesting opportunities here. And, and, and for us, we're, we're kind of GARPI investors. So, so we um, look at lots and lots of things and we have a wish list of particular exposures or possibly companies we'd like in the portfolio, but only under the right circumstances of valuation and progress in their journey to realising whatever it is that we expect them to do over time. Um, and we've certainly had the opportunity to bring some things into the portfolio over the last couple of months during this period uh, because they've been unfairly penalised um, in, in this kind of broader and, and um, disorderly market sell-off. Okay, and um, have you used gearing at all to do that or is that something you would consider doing? Um, or are you nervous about doing so just given how volatile things are at the moment? 
No, we absolutely have done. So our, our gearing has gone from being, you know, at the end of, of, of sort of October, November, it was it was it was pretty low, uh, a couple of percent, and um, now uh, we're 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 into the double digits. We're sort of around the eleven, twelve percent range. We can go to twenty percent. I think the reality is that we're not naive to the broader geopolitical environment and um, we recognise that it's quite possible that the broader market may see further drops so we want to keep our powder dry obviously to take advantage of that additional drop were it to happen but also one doesn't want to be close to 20 and then the market drops and then you're above the, 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 the limit that you're allowed and then of course you'd be a you'd be a full seller of, of assets at distressed prices so we, we, we want to avoid that situation as well um, so we're comfortable with, with, with a double-digit level of gearing. But as I say, the reason we're comfortable with that is if you look at the, the, the price of growth, for want of a better word, in healthcare, particularly small mid-cap healthcare, that you're seeing today versus what has been on offer over the last five or six years, it is materially lower. And that is, a, I, I think, a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And, and, and therefore, yes, absolutely, we've, we've taken advantage of the flexibility that the investment trust structure has um, to, to, to put some gearing in there and, and, and increase our overall exposure. Now, from a market timing point of view, um, you know, we've been buying all the way down, so one could argue we've been wrong to be doing so. Um, but on the other hand, um, what, what one, I think picking the bottom is very challenging and um, events can move quite fast. And, and we're really looking at this on a multi-year period in terms of realising our, our returns from doing it. So, so again, I think um, it may look like the not the appropriate thing to be doing in the shorter term, but in the longer term, we, we feel it very much is the right thing to be doing. Great. And um, perhaps a couple of questions to finish off. So one is, are there any sectors that you are particularly excited about? and? Yeah, as a conversely, are there any areas that perhaps you think are worth avoiding, particularly if they're, if they're more counterintuitive? So, as in, if there's a particular area that seems to get a lot of hype or lots of people would assume um, would be good to invest in, but you perhaps see things otherwise? Well, I think that there are, there are a couple of, couple of things to say there. So, so in, um, in, in terms of where we see really, really significant opportunities, uh, I think one of the big uh, thematics that's become prevalent in our portfolio post-COVID um, is, is really the, the management of, of, of people at home. So medical management, I'm not talking about sort of meals on wheels uh, for, for the elderly, but, but, but the idea that if you have an inconvenient chronic condition, so let's imagine you have rheumatoid arthritis or cancer, for example, and you need to have uh, infused drug therapy. You know, why do you go to the hospital um, to have that therapy when you could have it administered in the comfort of your own home and in so doing not expose yourself to the risk of all sorts of communicable diseases, which is particularly problematic if you are having chemotherapy because it hurts your immune system. Why do you want to go to a clinic three times a week for seven hours to have dialysis when you could have it at home? Um, if you're having physiotherapy, why do you go to a clinic for that? Why can't a physiotherapist come to you? And so on and so forth. And that, that technology is enabling those things to be to be done very effectively. And for the appropriate data and supervision, 
uh, from a physician perspective to 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 be um, scraped by all sorts of connected tools. You, you know, you can imagine with, with with phones and iPads having cameras and internet connectivity, you can have people at home and you can monitor all sorts of parameters about them and how they're doing and what they're doing in in ways that that, that weren't really imaginable ten years ago, for example. So, so the transition in the care setting. Uh, is something that we're, we're really, really excited about. We've been interested in this for a long time, but it always felt like it wasn't quite ready for the prime time. But because of COVID, people have recognised that, you know, hospitals are nasty places full of sick people and they'd probably rather not be there. But the other point of this is that they're incredibly expensive and um, people do much better when they're not in them because they're depressing places to be. And, and, and so you, you actually get this, this virtuous... Uh, trifecta of all the things I've talked about before. So you get better clinical outcomes, you get happier patients, and you save money um, through this transition in, 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 into the home care setting. So we've got quite a lot of, uh, of skin in that game, and that's something that we're we're, we're really really excited about. In terms of, um, of, of of things maybe to be a little bit careful about, I think um, lots and lots of people are, are are crowding into large cap pharmaceutical companies because they're very big and liquid and their portfolios are very diverse and um, they're unlikely to be impacted by the pandemic but by recurrence of a pandemic or by you know the geopolitical uh, inflationary issues that we've talked about because they've got high gross margins all those sorts of things let us not forget that the reason that large cap pharmaceuticals hasn't been a very good place to be invested for the last five or ten years is because of the point I alluded to earlier about the lack of scalability of R&D and the dependency of these companies on on, on externalization uh, in order to, 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 to keep growing. Um, that hasn't changed. So, so while I understand that people are hiding in these things because they are the, you know, the logical place to hide, I think if you're a more retail-focused or private investor, it's worth considering that when the opportunity re-emerges to, to feel safe investing in pretty much anything else, people are going to drop these things um, because fundamentally they're not good companies and they haven't improved their, 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 their long-term competitive position. So that's something that I think people just need to be wary of. So, um, you know, in, in, many times when, when markets are going through periods of of significant uncertainty certain things work very well until all of a sudden they don't and i think large cap pharma uh, uh, runs a very high risk of falling into that category so so carry out mTOR on that well paul that's um, i think well that's all we've got time for so thanks very much for joining me um and uh, hopefully we can catch up again at some point in the future thank you very much <laughs>